All right, how many video shooters do we have out there? Hands up. Personally, I think all of us are now, right? You got a cell phone, you do Instagram stories, you probably shoot videos. Yeah, I mean, they've really become kind of a nice short-form filmmaking tool. And if you don't recognize that voice, you should. That is Jordan Drake, who is from the Camera Store TV, the premier camera YouTube channel on the internet, I think. Oh, I appreciate that. You've been uh, showing up more often lately, which I like. Yeah, I've been uh, bouncing around on our channel and try to get in a few other people's shows as well. But uh, yeah, it's always good just to chat with the community. And I just want to like brag on your part. You just hit uh, how many subscribers recently? We just, it was funny, in the same week we hit 300,000 subscribers and 50 million uh, views, same time. That's amazing. That's pretty great. You're an inspiration to us all. Thank you. (laughs) But yeah, so Jordan covers the video side of things for the most part. So a lot of the time that means that he is actually shooting the YouTube videos and then editing them later. And Chris Nichols, who was on the previous episode talking about camera buying advice, is in front of the camera and he's, you know, usually hosting more often. But when people need to know about video cameras, Jordan is the guy I mean, you're the guy I ask questions to, so there is no one better to come on and talk about some of the tips for shooting video better that anybody can apply. This is kind of the same thing that we did with Cameron the other day, just giving away all the secrets. Like, this is the stuff you got to know. These are the pro tips. Well, this is great because I spend so much of my time just talking about technical details and things like that for people who are already deep into it. But I'm really looking at this as kind of, here's the things that, yeah, I wish I'd known right from the get-go that uh, I need to prioritize as opposed to obsessing about specs or, you know, doing things the professional way, which is often a little inefficient if you don't have a big crew. Yeah, I think there's things I did wrong for, I mean, quote-unquote wrong for a while because I heard that professionals do it. Like, I heard that's how Hollywood does it, so I'm going to try to do it that way. But there's sort of more fundamental stuff that can get you better quicker. So I'm hoping we can hit some of those points today. We each have a list in the same kind of format that I did with Cameron. I'm going to let you start, Jordan. The first thing that I really wish someone had told me right from the get-go when I got started was about coverage and B-roll. So often, especially we see this now a lot with things like Instagram stories or people are putting up YouTubes where they just sit and talk to camera. But the information that we need so often is we need to see where they are. What is the actual location that they're in? What are they talking about? You know, if somebody's doing a cooking show or something like that, they're just talking to camera. Show me exactly what you're looking at, what's interesting. And immediately with that one small step, you can make something so much more engaging than what we had before. What are they talking about is a really good way to to phrase that. And uh, I've done that. I've kind of made that mistake when I have tried to be lazy about YouTube videos. Like, I mean, it's a thing I kind of already knew, but in some of the um, videos from a little over a year ago, I had just, I was like, look, I haven't been posting on YouTube for years. I just got to get something up. So I just recorded myself mostly talking with a few shots of cameras Mm -hmm. because it's much quicker to do that. I mean, it is faster not to have B-roll. And if you don't know, like B-roll means, where does the word B-roll come from? Well, it comes from you'd have your A-cam when you were on like a broadcast thing, which was your primary camera that the person was talking to. And then your B-cam would get that same information, the location, where you're at, what you're talking about, the close-ups of the hands, things like that. Yeah, and that's terminology I've just thrown around on this podcast before. Like, I kind of take it for granted. But so when I'm recording my YouTube videos, there's the A-roll, and that's usually me standing in one place in studio, just talking and talking. 
and I edit that together. There's jump cuts in it, you know, it just kind of keeps playing. And over top, I add B-roll showing whatever it is I'm talking about. You guys have a slightly different approach on your channel where, well, a more refined approach. And you guys did a whole video about that, actually. Do you want to speak to that, Jordan? Yeah, so we did a movie um, using coverage, the trick to making videos that won't annoy people. And by people, I mean me, basically, because I'm an old man. But in ours, we very rarely have jump cuts. And a jump cut is anytime someone is talking, the camera angle doesn't change, but we cut to another clip that they were talking to. So suddenly their hands are in a different place, their head. And I think YouTube has really kind of acclimatized us to this. I think I'm I'm much more susceptible to notice it than a lot of viewers right now. But usually whenever we'd have one of those, because Chris is great on camera, but he does still, you know, make mistakes or goes on too long and I trim little bits out of it. I put a piece of footage of a camera or a location, anything there on top of it. And most of the time it's motivated, but sometimes I'm certainly guilty of just Chris is talking and suddenly we'll cut to a bird in the area. (laughs) And that is because I am so anal about not uh, having those jump cuts in it. But certainly I think that's something that people are loosening up about. And, you know, if you present it properly, I don't think it's a big issue. Well, and maybe you're spoiled by just having a good host that doesn't screw up every five seconds like I do. Oh, it's a perk. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And maybe I, uh, you know, I'll go 10, 20 takes to get through one of my video talks that are maybe a fifth of the episode that we do. For that same reason, you know, I'm not as comfortable on camera. So to avoid those jump cuts, uh, we do a lot of takes of stuff. Um, It's certainly not as efficient. It's just, you know, I always say I shoot what I like and that's the particular aesthetic that I appreciate. But I know it's not a hard and fast rule anymore. But what I do think you definitely need is I can't sit through one of those videos where it's just a head jump cutting its way through it. I mean, you can call it a rant now and justify its existence, but I still don't think it's a terribly watchable format. Well, you're definitely in the minority on that one because it's a very popular form of YouTubing. But, you know, we are striving for something higher here. And I think you can always aim for more. The only reason that I could excuse those ranting only or talking head only videos is that there's some types of content that just wouldn't get out if you needed to spend the time getting B-roll. Yeah. So sometimes it's like response to a news item. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when it makes sense. But the more refined the story is meant to be, the less of an excuse there is not to have nice B-roll. So, you know, I don't want to dwell on each tip this long because I think there's more to say about it. Like jump cut specifically. So in the age of YouTube, the idea of a jump cut not only has become more popular because just everybody's doing it, so everybody is kind of accepting it more, but it's become a a look, right? So I think that it's even moved into Hollywood and moved into traditional filmmaking when you want to communicate that YouTube energy, right? Like the energy of somebody speaking more spontaneously, and it kind of adds like an earnesty to it or like a the truthfulness of punk rock in a way, right? Like since it's more edgy, it seems a little bit more real. So the way to decide if you're going to have a jump cutting video or not is really about the context of, of the story you're telling. So in a lot of commercial settings, 
it would it would still never be acceptable. Like it never will be. You always need to have proper coverage or like in in news, proper television news. There'll always be smooth transitions to B-roll and so many places. It needs to be the way that Jordan still shoots, which is just more traditional. That's how it always had to be in the past. And now we've got this like new YouTube aesthetic that gives more options. But if you don't understand how to make a video the way that Jordan's describing, then you're definitely limiting yourself. If you lean too hard on jump cuts so that you couldn't do something without them, you're missing out. No, I think that's totally fair. And I could see it being appropriate, you know, if I was at a press conference and the news just came out and I'm trying to make it sound really exciting and like I'm just pumping it out right now, then I could see doing that for sure. My uh, major concern with jump cuts is I do get the feeling that they will be something that's immediately remembered as from this era. You know, this decade was the decade of jump cuts because I'm, I'm going to film nerd a little bit, but... um in the 60s, when the French New Wave started, that was the origin of the jump cut. They started putting it in movies, and then everyone put it in Hollywood movies and everything worldwide for like five years after that. Um, but then that trend kind of went away, and I'm kind of wary. Uh, now when I see, when I'm teaching kids, like teenagers editing right now, they instinctively understand the concepts of B-roll and coverage. It's crazy because it took me years to really understand how to use that. It's the way brains are changing. And uh, I do think when this next generation comes out, we'll still see that aesthetic from time to time, but it's not going to be the standard. So you might as well be ahead of the curve now and understand coverage. So I'm going to make a segue to my next tip, which I didn't write down, but now it becomes very obvious now that we're talking about this. And this is just when you're editing Jump cuts are when the scene doesn't change very much, but the subject jumps from one place to another. Important things that you can do that are not jump cuts, but very helpful is if you have a lot of footage that is moving through space and time. So a camera is going, you know, moving down a street, or you're trying to tell the different steps of somebody's day, it's okay to cut out an insane amount of those steps. So like a first impulse, like when I was making crappy little high school videos, I remember like I did one, I think this is like a standard thing people try at some point, is a video of waking up. It's sort of natural to be like, okay, I'm going to make a story. So where does the story start? It starts when the alarm goes off in the morning. So I have a shot of alarm clock, then I have a shot of me hearing it and rolling over, then I have a shot of hand hitting alarm clock, me sitting up out of bed, Feet going onto the floor, me standing up wide shot, me walking across the room, opening door. That's the first, that's how I made videos at first because yep. I didn't really get it. And I think a lot of people do. And this is more like right, what I'm describing right now is more of like filmmaking. This is less of like an Instagram or YouTube thing. But you can assume that the viewer is going to fill in a lot of that space with probably the right answer. Like if you just had an alarm clock go off. And then walking out of the house, sitting in a car and closing the door. Yeah. You yeah. could, you can jump ahead a long time, even hours. Like you can go from alarm clock going off to sitting on an airplane. There's so much that you can trust your viewer to just understand. And it's stuff that like you're used to watching this language in films. You see it all the time and you just accept it without thinking about it. But it's hard to make that leap yourself sometimes, especially early on, because you want to, you feel like you are not doing your job if you haven't told the whole story. 
Yeah, I mean, so often when I'm cutting, I do a lot of montages on our show. And so often it's like, what is the bare minimum number of shots I can use to <laughs> yeah. establish where we are, where we're going, what the point of everything is, and who's there? And I think that's important because some of our videos can get a little lengthy. So you want to keep that pace moving constantly. Yeah. So like things I'll do when I'm vlogging sometimes is if I'm, let's say, moving through an airport, that's an easy example, is like, uh, you're recording for like a few minutes at a time, or maybe you're turning it on and off. It doesn't really matter, but it's more or less a continuous shot of like you are entering the airport and going through it until you get on the plane that you can just sort of like delete big chunks of that in between. You can every few minutes just look for the moment that really communicates something like a marker in time that you bought your ticket or you handed somebody your ticket or you are walking towards the plane or you sit down um, and just like look for those points that are real like beats and only keep those in and they really can be very short I, I got one more really quickly an example because i'm looking at the timeline right now i'm cutting a video where we just went on a helicopter ride i only had one angle looking out the plane window uh, or the airplane whatever that helicopter window <laughs> yep so uh, once I started cutting those bits of the trip together, of course, it looks like jump cuts as we go. The light changes, the location's changing constantly. So while I was in the cockpit there, just grabbed a few shots of the pilot, the little joystick on it, things around the plane. And I used that exact same sequence, just stuck those together for a second at a time. And it makes all the difference in the world to making it look like it's a journey instead of me pointing the camera out of a window and cutting out the gaps in between. And the, I'm going to actually bleed this into a tip that I've written down because it's the same thing, is um, also just let your pacing be faster than your first instinct probably is. People that are just getting started, let clips run too long. Mm -hmm. I think that early on, you can always edit faster. And then later, having longer takes and slower pacing to me is a more that's more advanced because each shot needs to be better like if you're going to hold something on screen it needs to be interesting it needs to be compelling and something people want to watch for 10 seconds and if you didn't know 10 seconds was a long shot you're probably using too you're long, doing long it wrong. shots yeah. right now. Yeah. I mean, what about you, Jordan? What's like an average shot for you, if there is such a thing? Depending on the context, because we do a lot of long talks about technical jargon. But when I'm doing a commercial project or something like that, I would consider anything over two and a half to three seconds a longer shot. Yeah. It, that seems crazy, doesn't it? I mean, for, for non-filmmakers. But like one second is not uncommon. Less than a second is not uncommon. So uh, I've said this before, but a, a great tip is to just, next time you're watching a movie, just start counting off how long uh, each shot is on screen for, and you'll start realizing how quickly these things move. Yeah, there's a website where you can actually look at the average shot length for all the movies and uh, find out where your uh, attention span lies. Oh, send me that. I think I I've will. seen yeah, it. Yeah, it's great. Okay. Yeah, it's like ASL list or something. It's great. Cool. Okay, uh, I, your tip now. Uh, so camera movement. Uh, so often when people get started with these things, I see one of two things. Either they stick the camera somewhere and they talk to it, or they're walking around. And I see this all the time with vlog style videos where they're artificially waving the camera left to right, <laughs> trying to give some sense of space place where they're at. But you really do want to kind of choose when you're moving the camera, why are you moving the camera? As opposed to that vlog style where you're waving the camera back and forth, maybe shoot yourself talking. But then over top of that, 
do a very deliberate controlled pan past the area that you're in. Um, wait, 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 back up. So make sure I'm picturing this waving situation, right? This, what you mean is like somebody lifts the camera up and kind of swings it around to show yes. what's behind them. They're, yeah, using a cell phone, they're using the selfie camera on it and pointing it at themselves and they're just rotating their bodies so you can see the environment that they're in. I could hear you just doing that in your audio. I could hear you swinging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, so, so, you I'm so used you to doing these on videos. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so, so you stop swinging your camera around. Well, and yeah, choose why you're trying to move the camera in a shot. You know, is the If the camera's moving forward, is it moving forward for a purpose? Is it revealing new things? Things. Uh, my trick with camera movement is I will only ever move the camera if it's going to show me information I couldn't see at the start of the shot. So the big gimbal tracking shot is a great example of that where you can really bring someone into an environment or panning the camera, just swinging it from side to side. Uh, am I going to reveal any new information that wasn't there in the first shot? I think that's why we move the camera and that's what filmmakers have learned because it used to be a huge pain to move a camera. Uh, so you had to have a motivation for it. And I think that's still the case today. It's a lot easier to move your camera, but before you do, think, what am I hoping to get out of this? Oh man, these tips, each one of these could be a full episode. Um, <laughs> okay, so I'm first going to tie this into my Instagram stories a little bit, because that's something that I've just had people asking me about lately. So I want to make sure I'm bringing it up in, in podcasts. And what I've been doing in my stories, if you haven't watched them, they're all sort of, like I'm editing them kind of like a vlog. They're great. The stories, they're vertical. So you get a really different set of information than you would in a horizontal image. Like that idea of moving the camera around to show you where I am really doesn't work very well because in selfie mode on, say, on an iPhone, I only see my face. Like there really isn't more to see. So I have to move out of the way if you're going to see past me. So instantly when I start doing these edited vlog style stories, it only makes sense for me to talk. And then the next clip, I'm looking away and I'm showing you the thing that I'm talking about. And they're always different clips. So I can't, in that format, I can't do the voiceover just by, because of an yep. editing constraint of how it works. I have to talk and then show you. But that's fine. I mean, it's a constraint and constraint breeds style. Just think about those things. And, and when you're, if you're doing it on, on stories, it's a, a great lesson is that you don't have to have it all in that same shot take one shot to tell and the next shot to show. Totally. But in terms of the camera movement itself, I think you do an outstanding job in your Instagram stories of doing a little little tilt or something like that to, uh, you know, reveal a little piece of information in the shot. Uh, and that's always how I would always look at those things. Well, and let's talk about how you move it a little bit too, because yeah. I try not to move the camera unless I know it can be relatively controlled. Generally, right. uh, and stories are probably the worst example. I, I shake the camera a lot more in stories because they are they are literally handheld and they feel handheld. But if you're making things, especially for a big screen where people will be, it'll take up most of their viewing area. If there's a lot of shake going on, people are not very forgiving of it. It gets frustrating mm -hmm. quickly and nauseating quickly. If you don't have a way to move very smoothly, you may not want to move that shot at all. Like maybe just hold still. So if it's just fully handheld shots, like I'll often just sort of either move left or right subtly, like just by leaning. So I, you know, place, place your feet shoulder width apart and just lean from left to right. And that can kind of give you like a little sliding motion, leaning back and forth. But, um, 
trying to take steps, every step is a much bigger bounce than you think it is. While you're shooting, you don't realize how much that shake is visible in the final product. Well, and the smaller your camera, every step, the more that camera is going to move. That's why broadcasters have been able to get away with moving with the camera because they've got basically a giant weight strapped to themselves. But when you're waving a smartphone around, even though we have really great stabilizers in these phones now or these smaller cameras, all of that movement is really magnified. So you want to try and find some way to connect it to yourself. I always recommend don't hold it with one hand, hold it with two hands. If you're using a smaller camera, get your eye up to the viewfinder. Just find some way to connect it to your body besides a single hand. Yeah, uh, that's why rigs are popular. Like, you know, that could be a gimbal, which makes it really smooth, but also introduces its own limitations. It can be harder to have full control over the movement like that. But if you have like a shoulder rig or just something that touches your body in more places, uh, that can really help smooth things out. That's a fun sentence. One thing I've really learned to appreciate is image stabilization in camera as well. I was doing some shots on on Canon and Sony together at the same time, and um, the, the Sony is just more stabilized, I found, mm-hmm. uh, even though I was using a stabilized Canon lens. And that difference of how much the lens, or sorry, the lens or sensor tries to stabilize itself can make a huge difference in what your footage looks like. I've really gotten hooked on having some built-in stabilization. So uh, tying it back to stories again briefly, if you notice on my stories, they're smoother than most people's. And that's because for some reason, Instagram turns off the image stabilization and so does yeah. Snapchat. And It's crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I have no idea why. It's so bizarre. So if you shoot these externally in either the camera app or I use Spark Camera, that'll like fully stabilize it. It'll use all the stabilization available to your phone and make it look a lot better. Um, do we want to talk more about movement? I, I don't know. Maybe we start getting advanced. Let's keep moving. Okay, so <laughs> my next on the list is uh, camera choice. Um, and this, is, this isn't a specific tip. It's more like let's discuss the reasons and the impact of different sizes and types of cameras. And um, when you are deciding what you're going to use, it's so important to really consider the project first. Uh, We touched on this a bit in the earlier show with Brandon Havard, who shoots on a red and he does YouTube videos. So Mm -hmm. he's gotten known for having these really cinematic YouTube videos that feel like a movie. But even talking to him about it, there's big limitations with that of having such a large, heavy camera that now you can't hold it up in front of you as easily. You couldn't do like a selfie with it. You can't put it on a small gimbal, like a one-handed gimbal wouldn't support the weight. Uh, Most of the lenses become a lot bigger. Your batteries are bigger and more expensive, so you probably have less of them. Your memory cards are more expensive and hold less video, so you have less footage to work with. There becomes a lot of constraints as you go up the chain, mm-hmm. um, but also advantages. So uh, let's maybe like start at the top. Sure. No, let's actually start with what are you shooting with most of the time right now? Well, this is a perfect time to mention this because this is the year we downgraded. We used to use the big cameras, Sony FS7 and FS5 were our bread and butter cameras. Uh, and we've gone down to a little Panasonic GH5 and now GH5S. So they're small mirrorless cameras. Uh, that we can very easily travel with. Like you said, we can do a quick vlog-style selfie shot if we need it. But also, it's a lot easier to shoot 
out on the street. Right. Uh, you know, we've uh, gotten into some Alberta locations that might be trickier to shoot with if you had a big camera. Um, it opens up a lot of doors for us. And we've gotten to the point where kind of that mid-range, that two to $5,000 small camera is giving us really comparable images to, you know, something ten to $15,000 in the big guys. All right. Well, you've sold me on the small camera, but so why would anybody ever use a bigger, far more expensive camera? Like, why are they paying for the, the privilege of suffering through a, a big camera? So the major things that you'll see when you jump up to the big guys is you'll get a lot more audio inputs, which is always a struggle with the smaller bodies. They're a lot easier to move smoothly. Uh, it sounds funny, but something a lot bigger is once you throw it on support systems and stuff like that. If they can handle the weight, the camera will move smoother. It's easier to get as much control as you need. Uh, and you'll get things like neutral density filters in it, which I don't want to get too technical, but it just means you don't have to carry a big bag of filters around with you if you want to move quickly and uh, you're looking for the most filmic aesthetic in your footage. Yeah, we'll, we'll maybe touch on uh, ND filters a little more later, but f I mean, for me, that's a huge thing, um, having them built in instead of needing to add them onto the end of your lens. Um, and yeah, audio inputs, it's also important because you look at the small camera and forget that that's not everything. If you're going to have a wireless mic clipped onto somebody, that mic needs to be sending out to a receiver. Something. Yeah, yeah some, something needs to go somewhere. And if you only have one very small cable to, to plug things into, that's often not enough uh, on a small camera. Um, so as once you have a bigger camera, it has its own like preamps and XLR inputs and just much more flexibility for audio so that you don't have to worry about syncing. I mean, I do it when I have to, but I am sick of syncing. Like it, it yeah. drives me crazy. Whenever there's a problem with it, the last time I tried to do it, it just didn't work. Like the, the software automated syncing got it wrong. And that is, yeah. makes you want to cry. I always say uh, when you're using a big camera, the setup is longer, but you move faster once you're there. Right. Um, where with the small camera, of course, you can grab it and go, but there tends to be a lot more fiddling around with stuff. Uh, we see this all the time. I used to just grab my big FS and go shoot. Now I take my GH out, attach an XLR adapter to it, screw some ND filters in it. You know, it does slow you down shot to shot. And other differences for... You know, if you're thinking about it in a more professional way, is that you generally get more dynamic range. So the brights yep. and darks are better captured in a bigger camera. And it's interesting because that's starting to neutralize a bit. Like the, the smaller cameras, like the Sony A7R3 shooting in S log or the GH5 shooting in 10 bit. What is it? Is it four two two four two two ten bit? Yeah, yeah. And um, that's part of what that's part of what made us switch in a big way is those big cameras. Color space used to be what you were buying. You were paying right. for the best color, and that was kind of the tipping point where that scaled back. Um, and like you said, dynamic range as well is getting very good on the small cameras. So those things are getting closer. But what is still there, like a real advantage, is that the the footage just holds way more information. So if you don't completely nail the uh, exposure and white balance on these smaller cameras, you have very little flexibility to fix it in post. Whereas on the bigger cameras, any mistakes you make become more and more forgivable as you've got 
a higher data rate. And if you don't know, a data rate is how many megabytes is every moment of footage taking up. Um, and also the codec affects this. A bunch of different things affect it. And then the top of all that is shooting in RAW, where you are not setting the white balance or ISO. As you shoot, you can modify those things afterwards in post, so you are able to make a lot more decisions later, and you can forgive mistakes a lot more easily. It's kind of funny. I feel like every amateur filmmaker should have a camera that shoots raw to fix all of their issues, but it's really reserved for the highest level, <laughs> right. where those people, a lot of the time, they don't need that flexibility. Yeah, they usually they know get what it they right. want, and they're going to get it right in camera. Yeah, 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 totally. But it's great to have. But then there's real advantages of very small cameras, too. I mean, phones are awesome. Yep. I bet everybody listening to this has a phone with a video camera on it. And they like everybody still wants to upgrade your cameras. And you always feel frustrated with the gear that you have now. I'm like this, too. I have good gear. I have good cameras. But I always want a better camera. I always want something above it. But honestly, my iPhone can take amazing video that... I could build a career off of. If I lost all my other gear right now, I could turn around and start having a career making videos with my iPhone. The quality is fantastic. There's ways to make it better with apps like, I mean, well, Smart Camera for editing for kind of quick posting stuff, but Filmic Pro is another really good one that allows for, uh, you can shoot, um, well, this gets to more advanced things, but you can like set your shutter speed, choose which uh, mic you're using, set your color profile to be flatter. You know, there's a lot of different things you can use as you get into more advanced apps. And I, I'm just saying, don't underestimate your phone. You really can do more with it than you think. Well, and it seems like it was such a novelty a few years ago, like shot on an iPhone. But, yeah. you know, it's not the case anymore. Like, I mean, Sotobro's shooting stuff with that. We hear it every other day. Like, if your format works well with a with the lenses that come with your smartphone, then they can do a lot of stuff. It's more, you know, it's especially things like audio that I'm more concerned about when I'm working with that. Visually, pretty much every camera out there can give you a good image if you have good light. Well, speaking of audio, what's your next tip? Yeah, so let's talk about mic placement a little bit. I think this is one of the biggest struggles for people when they first get started. There's a few, this is slightly technical, but um, there's a few different types of mics out there. And let's say you're starting with your basic, like a small camera, a phone, something like that, is going to have an omnidirectional microphone built into it. And that means everything around you, it's picking up. So, you know, I'm in my house right now, but I had to remember, oh yeah, in the basement, I've got some laundry going. And we always filter that stuff out immediately. Our Same way we filter out white balance with our brain. We don't notice it. We do the same thing with background audio. Those omnidirectional mics, you really do, I find, have to, you know, if you can't monitor it, if you can't get a headphone line into your phone, just record a quick clip of audio and hear what's around you before you get started. I obsess over audio. And, you know, some would say that occasionally we've let people down that way, but it's hugely important. So start that way. But uh, there's a few other mics that can kind of rein that limitation in. Uh, what kind of mics do you use most often, Tyler? Well, right now we are using dynamic, or I'm using a dynamic mic. I guess I don't know if yours is or not. But a dynamic mic rejects all the sound around it so that it really only wants to hear the thing right in front of it. So if I start to move off axis now, I'm talking beside the mic to the left, and then I come back and I should be louder now. 
that's a dynamic mic. It's uh, that's what you'll see like on stage. What musicians will usually be singing into, and it's great mm-hmm. for podcasting. But it doesn't. It, it does have a limitation for video because you've got to get that mic close to your face. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so it, so it can be distracting. I mean, we're very used to seeing it on live broadcasts and stuff like that, where people are talking. It's what a news anchor would be holding. Exactly, but it's not something that you'd want for your you know totally. fly on the wall documentary style filmmaking. Yeah, and then for most of the stuff I. I I do on the go. I'm using the Rode Video Mic Pro Plus, which is still such a bad name. Um, Terrible name. Yeah, and I've been I've been really loving this thing. It's it's relatively expensive, but just really really versatile. So it's well, like, what what is inside of it? I mean, it's a shotgun mic. Yeah, well, so a shotgun mic is something that. Records what it's pointed at, but isn't optimized quite as much for something being right in front of it as a dynamic microphone. So I just used one of those when I was in Vegas. It's nice because I'm recording a group of people having a discussion argument. And as I pan my camera, I can kind of draw the viewer into what's more towards the center of the frame. But it does definitely have some limitations. If I were to go shoot somebody in front of a road, um, ivory car that drives by in the background is also going to be picked up just as well. Uh, Or someone in front of a waterfall, you really have to pay attention to what's behind your subject when you're working with a shotgun microphone. And I think people get confused about these that now, as long as your subject is in front of you, they're going to sound great. So they'll slap it onto the top of their camera and they just hit record and run around and, and start making a movie. But the proximity is still the most important thing. Yeah, with all mics, you want to get it close to your subject. Yeah. So there's not a mic, you know, short of like a parabolic microphone, which sounds terrible, but can be great for spying on people. <laughs> Other than that, you want to get that microphone close. But it's, so even with mine, with my shotgun mic, when I'm recording myself, I try to keep it within two to maybe three feet max from me at all times. Mm-hmm. So even though I use it for, uh, my like talking head videos because it's just easy for me to keep using the same mic. Like there may be setups that could sound better, but I find it really easy to just take it off the camera. I put it on the end of a little boom stand and I just like reach it over so that it's just above my head, just barely out of frame, and still like two feet from my face. Even if I am now five or ten feet away from the camera, I'll sound like I'm right there, and that. That is by far the most important thing about audio quality. Even if you're on a terrible mic, like if we were podcasting right now and just talking into our iPhones, but we held them up to our head, it would actually sound okay. Like you probably be wouldn't usable. complain. Yep. Yeah. Compared yep. to speaking into your laptop that's sitting on the desk it would be much, much worse. Yeah. Uh, the only other type of mic I always mention, because they're so inexpensive right now, if you're doing a smaller camera or something like that, look at just getting a wired lav mic. Lav mics are great because they really isolate the subject that's closest to them. So if you're shooting in an echoey area, a busy area, you've got noisy backgrounds or something, they're really wonderful at rejecting that. I actually, when we use lav mics a lot, I add in a little background noise because it can kind of sound like you're recording on a green (laughs) screen in front of a backdrop. Right. But they are wonderful things because the most important thing generally when you're getting started with video is 
the person speaking, whatever you're trying to convey. So lav mics are great for giving you that. And you can get great ones like Aperture A-Labs are 45 bucks right now. Uh, it's crazy how much the price of good lav mics has come down. Oh, yeah. There's a bunch of Aperture ones that are really... Th- there's the ones that have preamps built into them. Some of them don't. And they can go... So I've been using them like that lately of plugging them into my iPhone. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of a great just like backup if you don't want to buy wireless mics, you don't want to have a system. If you just get the one little piece that plugs into a phone, you can just have that and a phone with you and just open up the voice memos app and start recording and stick it in your back pocket. And you've got basically a wireless mic. It, like, it can really be amazing. I've used that in a few of my YouTube videos that added production levels that I think are much better than... I should have been able to get for the amount of money that those mics cost. It's crazy. We've done a lot of videos where we have something filmed on a phone where we'll start talking across the street and walk towards it. And it's just Chris recording audio into a, his phone or, you know, an external recorder. And every single time people are like, wow, what amazing production value. But it's a $40 mic. Oh, yeah. It's crazy the difference that it makes. And to talk about proximity a little bit more, this also can apply to how you shoot. So... When I'm doing Instagram stories, again, um, or this would apply to vlogging in general, think about when you're holding the mic right in front of you versus when it's across the room or pointed away from you. The way that the phone works is it is really particular about the directionality of the sound and which camera you're using. I don't know how the science of this works because the mics are on the bottom, (laughs) but when you set it to the front-facing camera, it listens very much to the front, and same for the rear. So it shifts, yeah. If the camera is not pointing at you and you're talking behind your phone, you're really quiet. It's it's inc- like I can't believe how much the phone is able to shift the direction that it's listening to. But I need to hold the camera close to my face if I'm showing something and speaking at the same time because it gets much quieter. And that also applies to having a shotgun mic mounted on the top of my SLR that if it's pointed away from me and at somebody else, the other person sounds great, but my voice becomes really low and boomy. Here, I'm going to do it right now. So now, I, now I'm talking from behind my dynamic Oh, God, it's, it's terrible. Oh, sorry, Jordan, sorry. Oh, oh. Yeah, so just be aware of that. And then also... Think about if you like if you don't have a lot of control over things like you're not okay. I'm not going to set up a wireless lab or even a wired lab or have multi. Like I'm doing this as simple as possible. Just try to only talk when the camera is near you. I, I did a little video of tips for Casey Liss on Twitter a while ago that got spread around quite a while ago, and that was the main thing I was telling him. He's shooting, so he's a he's a podcaster just getting into YouTube. Yeah, I saw that. That was great. Uh, and so he was. He was looking for all these solutions to record his voice at a distance. Like this thing we're talking about, he's standing far away from the camera, showing full body, like head to toe, and trying to make the audio decent while he shows all that. And what I suggested to him is, when you're talking, just come close to the camera. Like if you don't have a lot of gear, you'll sound so much better, and people will see you better. Like it, it's okay to be close to the camera. People want to see your face. They want to like see your eyes, and that's what makes them trust you. And then just use other shots that are showing off the scenery and being your wide shots, make them different from your talking shots. That can help a lot. Totally. Okay. Is that the end of that tip? Next one. All right. Okay. Next one I've got here. Uh, I didn't write mine in the format of tips. I did. I'm, I'm failing. Okay. I wrote color grading and shooting flat. <laughs> yes. This isn't a tip. I just wanted to like 
talk about it in general and, and raise the awareness of colors in videos, especially for people that are starting out with it or mid-level people that are starting to understand these things but get it wrong. I'm going to start with that. I'm going to start with the level that I see common mistakes at, and that's shooting flat. So there's two, there's two sides of flat images. First, you are reducing the contrast in an image so that when you're in post, you're able to bring out more detail. Um, I don't know if I can explain this well enough quickly, but since most video formats are very compressed, especially on more affordable cameras, you can't have raw, like, like we mentioned before. So the amount of data stored in each frame is a lot less than like a normal JPEG from your phone. It's struggling to get the brightest and darkest parts all to fit in that image. So the, the workaround, the hack to that, is that it pulls the contrast way, way down so that the bright parts and the dark parts are both exposed somewhat, like they're both still present in the image. And then when you're in your editing software, you increase the contrast a lot, and that kind of makes the image look normal again, but you haven't lost those details in the highs and lows. That's how people started shooting flat footage so much recently. Well, because that's how professionals would do it for things like filmmaking or projects where you'd have an editor working on it for, you know, months at a time after it was wrapped. Exactly. Yeah. And so that started becoming common. Like that's just advice we're all giving each other. And uh, YouTubers are picking this up and seeing like, yeah, I want to get more dynamic range. So I'm going to shoot flat. So it definitely started becoming more trendy to have flatter footage. Like that is a look that has become, you know, it's valid in in some areas. and, and Lifted blacks. Yeah, exactly. Like a bit of a fade. This was happening in stills as well. Yeah. And lifted blacks is the best way to describe it of like, um, just your shadows aren't very dark. Like it makes it feel slightly vintagey, a little bit aged. But now to the the complaint. Yes. Some people are just not ever fixing the footage. They don't realize how flat it was in the first place and they forget what a properly corrected image looks like. So I see footage coming out all the time that clearly is just accidentally flat because they didn't know how to restore the image to its proper settings, or I don't know what's happening. What's happening, Jordan? What we're seeing, yeah, is people don't bother to do the work. I see that all the time on local commercials or the biggest culprit. But more importantly, you have to walk away from log footage, I feel like. If you're looking at a very flat image and you apply a curve to it that you feel like, oh, it's much more contrasty now. Uh, When you look at that later, you might still be like, oh man, that is still way too flat um, because you haven't seen how far you've already moved that over. Um, But yeah, I do think people are are starting to kind of move away from shooting flat for everything to moving flat when they need it. Like what ratio would you say you shoot log to not log? I've been shooting almost no log lately. Like I only do it if I'm renting like a big camera. Like I was, I was borrowing the C200 from you the other day and that was shot in log, and I loved it. But that's, like, designed for it. It, it handles the conversion really well. But on smaller cameras, like, um, most of my YouTube videos are on the A7R2, and I've stopped shooting log on that. Yeah, I really, like, we used to shoot 100% of the show 
on log for the same reason as you. A colorist told me like, this is the way to do it. The only way you're going to get better is if you shoot everything long, but it slows you down so much. And more importantly, if you're shooting with a lower end camera, if you really need to stretch all that color and saturation and contrast back into the image, things can start to really fall apart in the midtones, which is where your skin to where your face is. Um, so now we use it. We shoot flat when we need that dynamic range. We have to get the detail in the shadows. We have to get it in the highlights. I was just shooting a scene where someone was lit on stage and we had Chris in the shadows in the background talking to camera. I needed log in that shot. But for the vast majority of stuff, if my, cam- if my camera can handle the exposure, then I'll shoot it with a more standard profile. Well, and I've got to say that although I'm not using log, I am still shooting flat-ish. Uh, so Cine 4 on the... Sony is the the profile that I use most of the time. And that's still, I mean, it's still pretty flat. If I left it that way, it would be too flat. Yeah. But the restoration process for that is so easy. Easy. I mean, basically, I turn up the saturation. That's the main adjustment that I make. And then, uh, like, kind of tweak it to taste. Sometimes I'll add a lot, you know, just kind of adding some texture back in there. But to just get it back to an acceptable level, the main thing is bringing the saturation back in. And even with that, I will often make the mistake of not bringing it far enough back. So I think it's, here's the tip part. It is so important to look at a normal photo next to it. Times that I've had the, I've been fortunate enough to have real stills that I shot of the same subject at the same time in the same lighting. If I edit those, my typical photo way, and I put them next to the video, even if I thought the video was already done, it's like, wow, this does not look right. And I, st- I go back in and I can bring it a lot closer to reality. But like, right. it, you can go colorblind to this stuff instantly. You just, you see flat and then your standards start to shift really quickly. So Bring in stills that, um, if you didn't shoot stills on set at the same time, then just find similar images. Just you know, go on Pinterest, go look at your old photos, whatever. Just pull some things on your computer monitor next to the video and say like, okay, are skin tones remotely similar? Are the blacks at all the same? Is there enough saturation? Just try to get a, some context for your adjustments. And I would really say, again, it's a technical thing, but if you can learn to read a waveform, it makes such a huge difference in terms of getting things as close as possible. It's just like the histograms that photographers use, but it tells you every aspect of your scene, how close it is to perfectly pitch black on a monitor and perfectly bright white. And I really find it very useful to get things because I, if I hand grade things, I always find I'm nowhere close to my blacks being at true black and my whites are nowhere close to being white. I think their uh, waveforms are even easier to read too. They're really, it, it's totally worth it. Go, go I want them, them for, why aren't they on photo cameras yet? They'd be well, great yeah, for that. Why isn't it just the same? Like, why don't we have the same things for both worlds? I don't know. This Maybe NAB, we're, forma- we're announcing that photographers and videos are going to use the same stuff and it's going to be great. We're forming a coalition. Yeah. It starts with the two of us. And the last tip is, um, Man, I I just didn't format these as tips. What's wrong with me? Okay, the last thing is depth of field. So uh, this applies to photography as well. So if you've ever listened to my other podcast cameras or whatever, you've heard me talk about it a bit. But it's something that's gone through that cycle of extreme trendiness to that I I think we're starting to flatten out a little bit. So the, the recent history of this is that 
previously, all consumer cameras had really small chips on them, like sensors. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that everything was always in focus. So you can still see this now on any cell phone camera because the image sensor is tiny. You know, it's a few millimeters across. And there's never really a chance to have anything out of focus unless you're very, very close to it, like a macro shot, or you're using some kind of digital effect like portrait mode on iPhones. Um, But all of a sudden, when the 5D Mark II came out, we had a camera with what was an enormous sensor, 35 millimeters. Like, that's bigger than what a lot of films were being made on. Mm -hmm. And that gives you extremely shallow depth of field, especially if you get a lens that's, you know, 1.4. So all of a sudden, everybody on the internet has nothing in focus, ever. (laughs) Just noses in focus for a year. Pretty much. And and it moving back and forth and back and forth. Which is, you know, when it happened, it was a look that people got excited about. They're like, wow, like it looks like a movie. But you know what happens in a movie is there's one person holding the camera and another person focusing, and they just get it in focus right away and keep it in focus. It doesn't hunt back and forth trying to find that moment. So we're at a stage now that I think is starting to mature a bit. And I think the appropriate way to think about this, because I still like shallow depth field. I mean, everybody does still. I love it. It's not going away. But every shot doesn't need to have shallow depth of field. And if you have one in a dozen shots, okay, let's say one in four shots is shallow, people will forget that all the others weren't. And you can see this, again, like go watch real movies. This is the best place to learn any lessons from. That's where the real tips are. Only occasional shots will have blurry backgrounds. A lot of them, every, more or less everything, will be in focus. Mm-hmm. And I think you you just remember the blurry ones, and that starts to communicate cinematic to you. Yeah, you just need to see that shallow depth of field once in a while. I I would say probably, again, maybe a fifth of our shots are what you'd consider super shallow depth of field when we're shooting the show. Um, But yeah, it just reminds you, you know, oh yeah, it's, it's decent production value. It doesn't feel like it's shot on a camcorder or a smartphone. But for the most part, nothing drives me crazier than someone moving their head and drifting in and out of focus, or they're displaying something with their hands and their hands are completely out of focus. Mm-hmm. I shoot the majority of our show with a reasonably wide lens, a Sigma 18 to 35, super 35 lens, um, stop down generally around F4 to F8 is kind of where I live at this point, because I like that larger depth of field to in- establish a place. Uh, a great example I like to go back to is recently the Handmaid's Tale was a brilliantly shot show but they shot everything in super shallow depth of field because it felt incredibly claustrophobic. And I didn't even notice it until a couple episodes in, but you always feel trapped with shallow depth of field. You need that deep depth of field to let you breathe for a second and take in your bearings. Yeah, I think people also underestimate how much blurry you can still get in the background at f2.8 or f4. That's still a pretty shallow depth of field often, depending on your lens length and the distance from the subject. And that stuff we're going to maybe save for later. But it's it's also not just your aperture. Like the way that you place yourself relative to your subject has a huge impact. So if you set it to f4, f5.6, or f8, 
and you step back and zoom in a little bit, the person will all be in focus. So from the back of their head to their gesturing hands, nothing will be blurry, but your background can still have some blur in it. So that's a way to not let the subject go out of focus at all, but still have that impression of blur. So there's different ways to kind of experiment with it, but don't feel like every shot needs to have it, but you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater either. Yeah, I always say just click through some of your favorite shots in movies, and you'll be shocked by how few of those are shallow depth of field. All right, we did it. We got through Yay. all the tips. Okay, um, so let's <laughs> let's get down to business uh, and talk about some cameras. All right, let's let's nerd out for a little bit. Here. <laughs> yeah, this is the part that isn't so evergreen. So if you're listening in the far flung future, this is uh, ancient history and boring news, and uh, you can move on to the next episode. But right now, in uh, 2018, in March of 2018. The A7 III from Sony was just announced, and I am very excited about it. Are, are yeah, you? I, I totally am. I think everybody is. It, I was shocked at how much cool video functionality they dropped at this price point. Do, do you want to talk stills as well with this guy, or are we going to do... Uh, I guess. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Let's, let's talk about right. it in general, because that's what's making it so exciting to me is that this is a very well-rounded camera much more than i expected i actually didn't even open the news article the first time i saw it announced i saw a few things come through like oh a7 III is announced i'm like okay i'll I'll read about it later because the a7 II and the a7 I were not very interesting to me like i felt like they were too handicapped can you remind me why Uh, i know autofocus wasn't great what else was there yeah, in terms of video, they they never got 4K support. Um, they did get picture profiles on the A7 II. But in terms of stills, yeah, they were older autofocus systems always, uh, kind of the bottom end of what they had available to them. The sensor for the A7 and the A7 II, it was actually the same sensor on both, and it was optimized from the ground up for photos. So the video on it had a lot of moiré, a lot of aliasing. It just wasn't a great sensor for that particular type of shooting. Nikon people would know that from the D610, uh, which suffered those same issues. So with this one, it seems like the sensor was really purpose-built for hybrid shooters. Uh, It's great video quality at full frame. It's spectacular. I would say it's a nicer image than the A7R3 even, um, and certainly better than the A9. So what I was asking you is I'm currently using the A7R2, which I've mm-hmm. really enjoyed and I've been recommending is like, I think it's, even though it's not meant to be a video camera, I think it was the best uh, Sony video camera in that range. And is there anything I would be missing in terms of video right now by uh, going from the A7R2 to the a 7 no, and that's what's crazy what? is you would actually get an upgrade and basically you said every... no so quickly. <laughs> well, and that's what shocked all of us too when they started rattling it off. It's like yeah, 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 twenty four megabits. But then once we got our hands on it, like the image on this, if you're shooting, you know, with your R two, the full frame quality is not as good as the Super thirty five. Yeah, uh, where you're cropping that sensor down. With this, it's actually the opposite. It super samples in its full-frame mode. So the image quality is phenomenal. I would say until you get to about like crazy ISOs, 12,800, 25,600, it's better than the A7S II, which was their video-optimized camera. And that's what's really compelling. We always thought the R-series were... These are the best hybrid cameras. You get amazing photos, and you get pretty respectable still or, uh, video capability out of them. 
But then with this camera, it's honestly, the sensor seems like it's built from the ground up for both. Um, this is crazy. There's not, not many sacrifices to it. And it has the autofocus system from the A9, which is their $6,000 Canadian flagship camera. It sounds like you said Canadian flagship camera, which is cool that they have one just for Canada. Yeah, yeah. It just, <laughs> it's got the Canadian flag on it. They embossed it on the viewfinder, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the other thing is that I think, to me, this is only above the R, even though it is fifty. $1,500 less US, mm-hmm. right? Because 2000 US and versus 3500 US. Yeah. So that difference to me is like, it is still a better camera because it's 25 megapixels instead of 40. I yeah. do not want a 42 megapixel camera. That is only a pain and it makes my life harder and worse. I want 25 is exactly the sweet spot to me. Like that is perfect. Even going from the 5D Mark III to the 5D Mark IV. It's been an inconvenience to have the slightly bigger file size. It means that each memory card runs out a little bit faster and I have to be changing them more quickly and my hard drives for each year fill up more quickly. And I'm not using those megapixels. I do not need them Mm -hmm. or I very rarely do. And in those cases, I could rent a camera if I know that I need to have something that large. So that is only good. So on the still side, is there anything other than megapixels that I'm giving up? between the, well, let's say between the A7R3 and the A7 III. Well, that's what's funny is you're not, we were expecting a big dynamic range drop off because the A7Rs have always been their landscape cameras. And DP Review is actually telling us they we haven't gotten final raw software yet, but it seems slightly better. <laughs> I can't for dynamic understand range. this. Like, yeah. is this going to be as big of a deal as it seems right now? Like, I don't know if I'm overblowing it, but it feels like every, like really everything just changed. Like yeah, I, the the cost of it used to be that you had to spend the price of a 5D Mark IV, and you could choose whether that was going to be a Canon or a Nikon or you know recently Sony's, but now to have a real pro pro camera that you're not giving up anything and you're getting advantages, you're getting better than a 5D. You're spending yeah. two thousand US. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of adapter support as well, they seem to really be pushing that way because the A9 was their best camera with lens adapters. This carries that over. So I think they're really pushing to get those Canon users to switch was a big part of their strategy going into this one. I I, I still can't handle this. Okay, so what else? What, what else is wrong with it? Why else is this a bad idea? So there must be something. What about performance speed? That's a huge concern I had with the A7R2. Is it pretty quick to operate? Yeah, it's it's very similar to the 3. Um, so I do think the processor scaled back a little bit because it feels like an A7R3, even though the files are half the size coming through it. So that might be the one thing that could be a bit of a drawback, but we're still talking 8 frames per second, no blackout when you're shooting with that. Wow. Uh, you're getting a real-time view through the viewfinder. It only slows down if you go from 8 to 10 frames per second, which is pretty marginal. It doesn't have the super fast scan of the A9 sensor if you're shooting silently. So much better than the A7Rs, but uh, it's still, you'll see some issues, a little bit of wobble if you're panning with fast action. Can you explain that a bit? Because I think a lot of people don't quite know what that problem is. Yeah, so uh, when you're shooting silently as opposed to a mechanical shutter flicking in front of the camera, 
it actually scans it top to bottom. And the more megapixels you cram in that and just the worse your electronics are, the longer that process takes. So if I'm panning with a subject, it scans the top of it first. By the time it gets all the way down to the bottom, it's in a different part of the frame. So it always bends all your vertical lines. Leads to a lot of weird things. If anything's moving fast, hair can look really bizarre if it's moving quick in a shot. And that's still going to be a concern with the a7 III but it's still better than the A7R3, which is, again, $1,500 US more expensive than this guy, uh, which is phenomenal. I think it's the most well-rounded electronic shutter until you drop six grand for that uh, A9 camera, which is still in a class of its own for that. I still can't believe it. But the high ISO performance on it is a huge improvement over what we saw before. Honestly, like, yeah, top to bottom, it just doesn't feel like they made many sacrifices Except, uh, and this is something that really is a video shooter, was an issue for me, uh, it's the same viewfinder as your A7R2. And uh, I'm sure you're getting by with it. I got by with that. I thought that was a great viewfinder at the time. But now that I'm spoiled with Sony's new 3.6 million dot EVFs or the one on the GH5 or the X-H1, all the new mirrorless cameras coming out, I do find when I'm manually focusing... When I'm using those 3.6 million dot viewfinders, I can just manually focus like I'm using an optical viewfinder. Uh, when I'm using this 2.6, I still find I still have to punch in and check focus. Uh, so it slows things down quite a bit. Is it still brighter outdoors? I think the A7R3 uh, had a brighter screen on the back as well. Yeah, it's the only drawback, it's not a true white display. So your whites can get pretty washed out when you're outside. Um, so it's a different technology than what we saw in the A7R3. Again, it's very similar to what you've got in your A7R2. Okay. But it's $2,000. It's crazy. Yeah. Buy, a, buy a small HD monitor. You'll be fine. It'll be great. Right, right. What does this leave for the A7S3 for you know some predictions here? I mean, obviously, they're going to crank up the high ISO performance more, which is crazy that they can do that. Um, do you think they're going to maintain the 25 megapixels? Are they going to stay at 12? What's going to happen there? I think it's going to be a 24 megapixel sensor. What? I think I think now that we've seen the benefits of super sampling, because I look at the A7 III video, it's way sharper than A7S II video, because it's taking that 24 megapixel image and shrinking it down. Uh, I think they'd be crazy to throw that benefit away. Uh, as well, your low light performance, when you're super sampling from that bigger image, it reduces the noise as well, which is was the original intention of having less pixels on the A7S II sensor. This hypothetical A7S III is just going to be the best, it, I think. If it has the amazing ISO performance, and I suspect they'll probably add some of those perks back in from the A7R three because it's mm -hmm. going to be similarly priced. So it'll yeah. have the better viewfinder. Better screen. The A7S three is going to probably be the best camera out there, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical. The one thing I'm concerned about is I think they might hold back 10-bit recording for their cine cameras. Because if they don't, why would you buy an FS7 at this right. point? But it would still blow away the, the... It would be the best hybrid camera, though. I mean, like, there are things <laughs> about the Panasonics that would be more useful for certain types of shooters, for sure. Yeah. Um, I still want a bigger sensor, personally. I like I like full yeah. frame. I'm not really considering a, a smaller sensor. But. Uh, yeah, I think that's that definitely makes sense. Um, the two things I do think we'll see, we'll see 60p. 
uh, at 4K, which is we're starting to see that on more and more cameras, and we don't yeah, have great. it on the uh, A7 III. Uh, it's nice to shoot slow-mo in 4K uh, and be able to punch in and stuff like that. And I'm going to put my money on this. I think this will be the first Sony camera where they'll pay the licensing fee or whatever it is to put a full flippy screen in it, like we get on the Canons or what? like we get on the Panasonic GH. Yeah. What's the uh, licensing that- fee? I don't know about this. So we keep kind of getting it hinted at, but I think someone has the patent for that uh, wow, design. Wow, I didn't know that. Because Sony, they, they kind of walked around it. Uh, you might, if you've ever seen an A99, uh, it has the weirdest flippy screen. It's on like seven hinges uh, so that you can pop it up above it and see the screen. Pentax has this weird angly design. It seems like someone's got the patent on it and you're paying a licensing fee. And in some cases they will. It can't be that much because rebels have it. Right. But um, so maybe Canon has the license, the patent. Yeah. And maybe that, I mean, that's the, there's only two camera companies that don't collaborate in Japan and that's Canon and Sony. So right. maybe that's what it is. This is very exciting times. I still kind of can't believe it. And I think I'm going to need one of these cameras. I got to wait for the S before I decide, but something, something's got to give. My money's on NAB, so you should just come, and uh, we'll see it there together. I sure hope I can. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Jordan. Where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, you can find us at youtube.com slash TV is our YouTube channel. And Twitter, I'm TCSTVJordan. Instagram, I just do... The Camera Store TV, all one word on Instagram. You guys have to do more Instagram stories, I'm telling you. Uh, Chris was doing it a lot this trip. That's um, exactly why I'm saying you got to do more. They were great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah we will do more of those. Uh, maybe on the main page, but the, in truth, I have a, the worst phone, and mine is tied <laughs> to the Camera Store TV. His is uh, TCS TV, Chris. So if you check that out, you can also see what we're up to. Awesome, thanks. And uh, anybody that wants to follow me on Twitter, I am Stallman. And what would be really amazing is if you're enjoying the show, leaving a review in iTunes, you'd be surprised what a difference it makes. Thanks for listening, guys. And thanks for joining me, Jordan. Thanks so much for having me. We'll see you again soon. 